afternoon, we are very, I am about to introduce a person who has 23 academic degrees. I've never done this before. Uh, three of those degrees came from uh, little known institutions like Columbia, Yale, and Harvard, where he received respect respectfully his bachelor bachelor's degree, his law degree from the Yale Law School, and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. Uh, he went on to a, an illustrious career, some government service with a, the old was Department of Health, Education, and Welfare at that point, wasn't it, uh, Steve? And then uh, 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 worked for the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, et cetera, et cetera. But was most famous and well-known for his extraordinary service as the 15th president of George Washington University. He literally put George Washington University on the map. It was a well-known and respected university before he went there, and I trust is still, but he uh, certainly added to its luster, its reputation, and his writings on higher ed have been uh, luminous, have been witty, and great. He has a little book, by the way, on letters that he has received over the years that people wrote him in their responses. I think it's the best book I ever read uh, on higher ed. It only took about an hour and a half to read, which is probably why it was so good, uh, but it was truly extraordinary. Uh, anyway, it is uh, my great honor and privilege to introduce the, the uh, 15th president of George Washington University, currently President Emeritus, Stephen Joel Trachtenberg. Thank you. Thank you very much. That master's degree actually was from the Kennedy School, not the, not the, uh, uh, not the business school. Um, actually, I, I wouldn't mind the upgrade, but uh, <clears throat> I, I always try to correct the record, lest somebody say that through silence I have somehow assented to a misstatement. Um, I'm delighted. I'm delighted to be here, and I and I was apprehensive about it. But yesterday, to my great and personal astonishment, I received in the mail uh, a yet a, a, another honorary degree from the the uh, um, Bucharest University of Economics, and uh, and uh, they wrote to say that it had been granted by the faculty senate in 2005, and since I didn't show up, uh, they they put it aside for me, uh, hoping I would I would ultimately come. And, uh, and then they were cleaning out an office, and they came on it. And uh, <laughs> I'm adding that. But they, but they did send it to me uh, um, in the mail. So I, I have written back to say thank you, and I, I was honored. Uh, and, uh, and I feel more plausible here today, therefore. And, um, and actually, I'm going to try and get to Bucharest. It sounds, it sounds like a terrific uh, place and obviously very insightful. Um, <laughs> My wife, Francine, is a, uh, an ex extraordinary chef. Uh, besides nightly meals, our family uh, partakes of scrumptious holiday uh, repasts, and we're all looking forward to Thanksgiving. Some years ago, in celebration of my birthday, Francine uh, set a table of international uh, cuisine. When I turned 50, she prepared a Chinese banquet, a meal that included several hours of dining with Francine stir-frying each course between, between servings. And she made dumplings and spring rolls and Peking duck and hot and sour soup and lemon chicken with cashews and pungent shrimp with scallions and glazed spare ribs and spicy beef and peppers and braised lamb with turnips and lots of fried rice and ended up with a uh, pineapple panna cotta. And when it was over, <clears throat> she basked in a glory of applause, earning five stars 
and multiple knives and forks from the 16 guests sitting around the table. And after everybody had left, I said, well, that was some success. The crowd loved it. What a night. And she said, what a night? She says, you think this meal was produced in a night? She had weeks, weeks of designing the menu, carefully balancing the tastes, the textures, the spices, starting with sweet and moving to savory, hitting a crescendo with the spiciest and coming down to mellow in preparation for the dessert. Finding the ingredients took multiple trips to shops, one end of town to the other. The ducks hung out in the open air in the sun porch with a fan blowing on them for 48 hours to get the skin crispy, not to mention all the mincing and the chopping for hours on end, grating ginger, crushing garlic cloves. Three hours of eating was produced by three weeks of preparation and will be followed by three days of putting all the dishes, silverware, and glasses back in their proper place. Cuisine, she said, is a behind-the-scenes operation. So, when I was president of GW, I heard the same refrain from senior faculty. What do you mean, I only teach six hours a week? Do you know what goes into preparing a three-credit course? Weeks of syllabus preparation preceding the, by writing lectures, conducting research, grading papers, and holding office hours. And what about the seven years it took to get my doctorate? Professoring, they said, is a behind-the-scenes operation. I said bullshit. But quietly. I have now been restored to my First Amendment rights, and, uh, and I'm uh, making the most of it. On average, faculty and staff salaries are roughly 70% of college and university budgets. Universities are, in fact, labor-intensive places. You cannot have financial reform of colleges and universities without addressing the staff and the faculty's position at the institution. While this is certainly not the only item that has to be scrutinized, to ignore the staff and the faculty is to behave like Congress trying to address the deficit. You can cut the president's salary all you want. You can cut the Congress compensation by 50%. That's not trying. The 1,500-pound elephant cannot be ignored. In the spirit of the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, I am here today to offer a few modest proposals for beginning the reform of higher education. First of all, the faculty is important to look at. The salaries, the sabbaticals, the teaching loads, the tenure, the adjuncts, the research, the publications, the advisoring, the mentoring, the committee service, and the building community. For the professional staff, it's critical to consider the sheer number. On many campuses, more professional staff work at the college than faculty. This is a very bloated area of higher education. You can look at faculty, you can look at students, but I assure you, unless you look at professional staff, you're not going to make any progress. Each one of these items deserves at least 20 minutes of discussion. In the interest of allowing the rest of this conference to proceed on schedule, I'm going to give you an uh, edited version. First, a quick anecdote. In a Connecticut newspaper about a dozen years ago, I saw an article that reported that a faculty member arrived at her office and saw a copy of the student newspaper announcing that the college was scheduled to close at the end of the semester. A faculty member uh, rushed to the dean's office and said, what the hell happened? Too many bills, not enough cash, replied the dean. Shaking her head with concern, the faculty member added, you know, I saw that my classes were getting smaller each semester, but I thought that was a good thing. I was teaching a seminar instead of a large lecture class. Turns out, it wasn't positive, it was negative. The handwriting was on the blackboard, to paraphrase an old quote, but she didn't notice. 
Let's begin with basics and review the goals of higher education. Simply put, I've got it down to three things. Transmit knowledge from generation to generation, opening young minds to wonderful new areas of learning and broad uh, concepts and great depth. Two, create bodies of scholarship, new, old, writing, and art, and analyze a refreshing manner there is existing repository. Find new ways to uh, explain an old puzzlement. Three, assist a group of young people, the students, transition to fully independent young adults who will enter the world of work and become responsible civic participants. College is the halfway house, the gateway between teenage years and adulthood. And if at all possible, this must be accomplished in an economically sound fashion, effectively, efficiently, dimin without diminishing the quality of erudition or open access of enrollment or reduction in scholarly output. So, it's important to remember that universities are one of the last major endeavors to remain in the handcrafted world of production. The conversation between professors and students comes very close to one-on-one -on -one dialogues. Indeed, as a former president of the University of Hartford, as well as GW, where I had a conservancy of music, I can assure you that the relationship to faculty and students is indeed one-to-one. -one. You don't teach violin as a lecture course. Uh, the, individually, uh, the individuality of both the tutor and the tutee are respected. The academy is a world of artisans, and as such, it is not always possible to apply the laws of the assembly line to its operation. One must also keep in mind that scholars are frequently idiosyncratic. Each is the master of a minute part of the universe. On every campus, there was someone who had more to say about Shakespeare than Shakespeare himself had to say about his own plays and sonnets. It took Ken Burns, for example, three years longer to make the public television series, The Civil War, than it took the North and the South to fight the damn war. <laughs> Education, it turns out, is a time-consuming enterprise. Now, I want to make a gross generalization. And one of the great funs of being President Emeritus rather than a sitting president is that I get to do that. The character flaw of most faculty members is that they prefer to be left alone rather than to be social animals interacting with their colleagues. They have chosen their profession in part because they are basically accountable only to themselves. This is a good gig. Somebody said that earlier today when I was listening to the lectures. Absolutely a wonderful thing. They are not great fans of department chairs, deans, provosts, or academic vice presidents, and certainly not of university presidents. I hear that there are some faculty who don't even like students. Scholarship is a lonely art. Universities are now managed by a system including shared governance that gives faculty members a say in how things are designed and run. But of the many things that we don't teach faculty on their way to their PhDs, on their way to tenure, does the institution provide them with a background or a training necessary to understand how the organization actually runs? Most faculty have very little knowledge of either economics, the management of universities, or anything at all about the history of higher education. Few faculty members can look at a university's balance sheet or an annual budget and comprehend the nuances of fund accounting. This is not what they're trained to do. I want you to think about scale. Major university today, one that has, let's say, 15,000 students, will have an operating budget approaching a billion dollars. Resource allocation, therefore, is not simple. So what do, you, what do faculty want? Well, they want higher salaries. They're just like you and me. Uh, higher salaries and more books in the library still, still, even now, and newer computers, 
and laboratories, bigger, fancier, and studios. And at the same time, the students want a broader selection of courses. They want an infinite selection of courses, a fuller range also of ancillary support services and higher quality facilities. Now, if you've got 5,000 faculty and you give each a new computer every three years, estimate the recurring cost. If you have 5,000 faculty who want daycare for their children, sabbaticals and tuition remission, estimate the recurring costs. To cover the cost of sabbaticals and research grants every year, approximately the equivalent of one-seventh of the faculty salary is carried in the budget for time spent out of the classroom, on leave, not inside the classroom teaching. By the way, footnote, one of the nice ways to control uh, faculty concern with the functioning of universities would be to take a second look at tuition remission. Uh, it always seemed to me that if you yourself weren't paying to have your own children go to universities, you were disengaged from the price of, uh, of, uh, of tuition. I tried desperately to persuade both of my children to attend GW where they could have attended for free. Uh, I even offered them each $100,000 uh, to be payable on the day they got their BA degree if they went to GW. I explained to them that I didn't uh, uh, hate Yale or Columbia, where they went respectively. It's simply that I loved them and the $100,000. Uh, both uh, turned me down. Ben did say, was this the last chance he would ever get at $100,000? <laughs> and I said, well, probably have to wait until I died. Uh, he seemed patient enough. I, uh... <laughs> so this, this is a daunting uh, discussion most times, but especially so when the economy is as it is. I want to ask you a question. If you had to pick one person to be uh, designated as the most influential person today in the world of higher education, who would you guess? A lot of people, I think, uh, my wife, for example, uh, guessed uh, Arnie Duncan, the uh, sitting Secretary of Education. On a scale of 1 to 10, Duncan gets an 8 from Trachtenberg. Maybe some say uh, Drew Gilpin Faust, president of Harvard, but I think she's only a 6. 10 out of 10 is a guy named Bob Morse. Now, there were very few people, trust me, in, uh, in America who've ever heard of Bob Morse. He is the director of the data research for the U.S. News and World Report, and he develops the methodologies and the surveys for the best uh, colleges and best graduate schools' annual rankings. Calling him the nemesis of higher education may be too strong a term, but acknowledging him as the controller of one of the most dominant forces in our community of higher education would not be an overstatement. He is, for example, I think, personally responsible for the price of law school education. I take that as one sample of the greater university. I was having dinner the other night with the dean of our law school who said, look, he said, we can run our law schools much cheaper. But if we do, they will decline in the, uh, in the rankings. And since our students come to us based in part on the rankings of our law school vis-a-vis -vis the others, for us to decline by reducing our tuition would be a terrible blunder. Now, the <coughs> U.S. News and World Report doesn't care what we spend the money on. We could pile it up in the corner and set fire to it. So long as we spent it, we take it from the students in tuition, we spend it somehow, we disperse it, uh, U.S. News and World ranks us, ranks us higher. Uh, to the extent that you're going to rank schools based on the price that they, uh, uh, that they charge, Trust me, they're going to charge uh, higher prices, and people will want to pay those prices because they think they're going somehow to a better law school. And what we've got is a catch-22, a, a snake eating its own tail. This is a, a, a madness. 
that clearly uh, it needs to be uh, addre addressed because if the law school becomes more efficient it pr and charges less, it is ranked lower. I once had a, a big contract, uh, not with, with uh, uh, U.S. News and World Report, with the American Bar Association, which was inquiring into what my compensation was for my, uh, for my uh, law school faculty. And I said, as president, I said, look, this is none of your business. You are not a labor union. The question is not what I pay my faculty. That's an input data. Uh, the question is, how good are the students when they graduate? That's the output data. That's your uh, attention. This, uh, this uh, uh, got, got very heated. I once said to them, look, if I get Justice Scalia, who wins the, uh, wins the lottery, and he's now independently wealthy, and I get him to step off the court and come to GW, and out of concern for me uh, and friendship, he, he, he says he'll teach for a dollar a year. So I add him to the faculty. And, uh, and that, of course, has to be averaged in with my average faculty compensation. So it goes down because I've got a professor who's working for a dollar a year. I said, uh, have I diminished my law school or have I enhanced it by adding Scalia to the faculty? By your standards, I've diminished. By mine, I've enhanced it. Well, enough of that. Before I return to the internal considerations of faculty and professional staff, I want to talk for a moment about peer pressure and external validation. To an unsound degree, universities too often allow themselves to be pushed around and bullied by the rankings and the rankings under the guise of the game of getting into the top 50 of whatever category you aspire to reach that will have a positive influence on admissions applications, the ability to hire other faculty, and will increase uh, uh, alumni giving. I talked about the control of the rankings. I talked about U.S. News and World Report and Bob Morse. But there are others, uh, Princeton Review, The Wall Street Journal. And the second uh, insidious lure of bait in the trap is the general perception believed across the higher education landscape that being a research university is the ultimate goal of all first-rate places. And who? Who doesn't want to be uh, uh, first-rate? Uh, recently, the American Association of Universities put the University of Nebraska out uh, of the organization. They had been a member for 126 years or something like that, and, uh, and they were expelled because, according to the AAU formula for judging, the amount of research universities that was coming to Nebraska, uh, um, they were uh, found inadequate. And that seemed to me bizarre, because it always seemed to me AAU was a lobbying organization. And since Nebraska is the only institution and in the state of Nebraska who has any plausible chance of being a member, um, to put the University of Nebraska out of the organization seemed to me to abandon uh, two senators. And since there's a limit to the number of senators, you don't want to uh, give them up. We in the District of Columbia would be desperate to get two senators. We'd settle for one. Uh, we'd settle for a congressman, a congresswoman. Uh, we get nothing. Uh, AAU rejects Nebraska. You have a lobbying organization. You put out the only access you've got to two United States senators. So I was curious, and I wrote this piece about this in the Chronicle and got uh, a very, very angry uh, uh, reaction from the uh, American Association of Universities, which said they weren't a lobbying organization. And I, I said back that it seemed to me that they were taking dues under false pretenses. And, uh, and you can imagine it got friendlier from there. I subsequently got a, 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 a letter from a, a great land-grant university president, who I will not identify because he wrote me the letter confidentially. And, and he said, I'm delighted about what you said. There are many of us who hold the same view. But if we were to take on AAU, our faculty would excoriate us. They drive us constantly to get into AAU and to stay in AAU. Uh, and, uh, and it becomes a, a sign of, their, uh, of their, their status 
to be on a faculty of a university that is a member of this association. Uh, a strange and externally driven uh, 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 view of the world from my perspective. After all, AAU is not Phi Beta Kappa, uh, but there you have it. So my shortest takeaway from this is that universities will not reform their financial model until one of two things happens. Several well-known campuses close their doors due to financial distress and the rest of the industry wakes up to the crisis. Or until US News finds something else to do with its magazine, I cannot overstate the point that rankings drive universities to do unsound and financially inadvisable actions under the myth that if their rankings improve, life will become happier, sweeter, and mana will fall from heaven. I'm currently consulting to a law school that is looking for a dean as a fourth-ranked law school. It does a very nice job for its students. The students are obsessed about being at a fourth-ranked uh, uh, law school. Uh, and, uh, and the only way uh, essentially that uh, they are going to be able to move up would be if somebody hijacks the Harvard uh, endowment and switches it all over to this little law school, which uh, is not uh, imminent. Um, and yet, and yet, I realize that these are impossible dreams. Americans adore rankings. ESPN's uh, top 10 men's and women's basketball teams, David Letterman's top 10 of the night, Forbes' riches, the December annual reviews of who's in and who's out, Wine is rated 1 to 100. Michelin gives out stars. TripAdvisor's tallies travelers' fantasies. And the New York Times rates restaurants. You can go on. I do not believe either that the above will happen in the near future. There's not going to be a run uh, of bankruptcies at universities. Bob Morse is not retiring to Hawaii, to the best of my knowledge. And uh, therefore, I'm going to make some modest suggestions to give higher education a 20-year uh, breathing spell before total chaos reigns. Set as a goal, increasing practically productivity by 20% and lowering the number of staff by 20%, and you'll have a serious impact on the financial standing of universities. Today, most colleges hire new junior faculty at about the age of 29 when they are newly minted PhDs at the blush of early promise. These baby scholars come up for tenure in their sixth or seventh year of teaching at about age 35. And at that point, the university is asked to make what is now about a 40-year-plus contractual arrangement with each person. As you know, the federal government has made it impossible for us to maintain a mandatory retirement age as a result of the Federal uh, Age Discrimination and Employment Act. So the earlier tradition of a faculty member getting a tenured slot at age 35 and then teaching for 30 years until age 65 is gone. Few professors now retire before their early 70s. I myself am 74, self-declaration, transparency, and many remain in their positions far longer, well, not 74 till next week, but all right. And many remain in their positions far longer for the simple reasons that people's lifespan has increased, the job comes with a decent salary, <coughs> it's indoors in the winter, uh, you can walk around in the summer, there's healthcare coverage, dental, and the relaxed teaching load that accompanies senior faculty, frankly, doesn't require Heavy lifting. Who would voluntarily give this up? Well, not me, as you can see. Tenure, or as we can call it, lifetime employment contracts, lock in the higher ranking, higher earning faculty at great expense to the institution on a financial level and programmatically because it stifles young blood. By remaining on the jobs for decades longer than before, there are fewer and fewer slots available for new hires there's a growing mountain of newly minted scholars with doctorates and no place for them to teach. Our relationship of production 
to necessary to market is Soviet in its, uh, in its uh, uh, madness. Uh, so uh, we are graduating probably eight PhDs in history for every job that comes available in the fall and the other seven trying to figure out what to do with their lives. No single university can radically alter tenure because of what I call the appearance of relative deprivation. If, for example, GW were to eliminate tenure and move to an innovative stepped-up contracting system, faculty being recruited by the institution would look at the benefit packages being offered up the street at Georgetown and they'd say all things being equal, I'd rather teach at uh, Georgetown or American where they still have tenure than at GW where it's no longer given. Now, if the California State College System or the New York State campus system, 64 campuses in New York State, would have changed the tenure process, then you'd see a serious inroad into the ability of other colleges to join the bandwagon. This is a case where there's going to have to be comfort in numbers. Traditionally, tenure provides two things the famous job security and the academic freedom. And that may have made uh, some sense at one time when John Dewey was still with us. But I no longer believe that tenure is required to protect free speech. Our courts are more than adequate to take care of that. As for job security, well, yes, yes, here I am sure that GW would not retain me if I, uh, if I didn't have tenure. Well, I'm not sure, but I, I'm confident. Uh, it's a good thing, but we have to weigh several factors when discussing its role on campus. The present length of employment that I referred uh, to above makes it virtually impossible to hire young faculty without increasing the overall size of the faculty, and the extra years that faculty stay on the job after 65 has contracted the ability of fresh PhDs to find academic employment, and this is a tragedy at several levels. Youth does, in fact, bring new ideas and fresh approaches to the disciplines. Youth does, in fact, bring energy. Yes, uh, I may be older and maybe even wiser. But the productivity of faculty greatly diminishes in many fields uh, after the age of uh, 50. The first 30 years grow far greater works of literature and history and biology and physics and math and chess uh, where they peak at 30. We have an obligation, it seems to me, to refresh our supply of scholars and scholarship. There are, of course, creative ways to structure buyouts for senior faculty. I'll give you one example. For the sake of easy math, let's say Professor X makes $100,000 a year. If she voluntarily retired, assume her pension would provide 50% of her salary or $50,000. The university could offer to make up the difference for some period of time, let's say $50,000 for two or three years, and continued health insurance in exchange for teaching one class. Let's say uh, then $40,000 for a year, then $30,000, at the end of five years, $20,000. With the differential of what the university is paying Professor X from the original 100,000, a younger faculty member can be hired and you'd still have whatever contributions the older faculty member continued to teach. Young faculty uh, earn less per annum than do the senior faculty. If you reduce the number of senior faculty and increase the number of younger faculty, the total salary line will be less than the pool uh, if the pool is top heavy and the students will have access to more faculty and more choices. Faculty are rewarded for the, with the benefits of time. Most teach nine months a year and have June, July, and August available for reading, writing, excavating, or sitting on the beach. The more senior the faculty member, the less classroom teaching they generally often undertake. The ever-reduced teaching loads have given rise to increase in the number of adjunct faculty to cover the work that needs to be done in the classroom. And while this is healthy in some disciplines, and in some areas, like GW, very rich in adjunct faculty in the Washington area, 
more isolated uh, campuses do not have those uh, opportunities. Overall, the growing lot of adjuncts are a group of unhappy, financially insecure academics. And this situation is not good for the attitude they bring to the classroom or for higher education. Next point. Too many universities aspire to become major research schools, the equivalency of being a member of AAU, the organization that now has 34 members, but hundreds of aspiring candidates. I kept trying to get GW into AAU. Schools that want to get into this organization, it's fairly common to reward faculty members involved in serious research with a reduction in the teaching assignments to give more time to the laboratory or the library. This has translated into a norm that says something like, you're on a university-wide task force, teach one class less in the fall. You are writing a magnum opus, offer one class less, uh, less than uh, the average. 25 years ago, the average course load was what was called 3-3 or 3-2 depending on the discipline. And today, it's more like 2-2. And many at law schools are teaching 2-2 or 2-1. Reduced teaching it becomes, over time, seen as a right. And by that, I mean almost all faculty get a reduced load, not only the one who's actually producing the research. And new faculty are frequently hired, seduced to come to your university rather than elsewhere, with the promise that their teaching loads will be light, not heavy. Think of the irony. The dean says to a candidate, you're really wonderful. We want you to come join us, and you'll hardly have to, have, to have to teach a class. What a message that sends to a new faculty member joining a campus. So in the ideal environment, I'd like to propose a two-tier system of equals, a silo of faculty members that teach and get rewarded with raises and promotion and tenure, primarily by virtue of their classroom performance, and secondarily by their research and campus service, and another cohort of faculty that teach less than the others, but who produce more research, books, whatever it is we want from them. This group would get raises, promotions, and tenure primar primarily by virtue of their scholarly activity and secondarily by their teaching and their campus service. Compensation could be equal, but we could put the best teachers in front of the students, and by best, I'm simply meaning people who want to be there, and often put the best writers in front of a computer with more time to scribble, scribble, and scribble and do their uh, scholarship. Along with the problems incurred with increased seniority is the, in the professoriate and the lifetime contracts, and of course the loads, we have to add the present faculty equation, the academic calendar, which at most schools is divided into two 14-week semesters for a total of 28 weeks of direct student-to-student faculty member contact. That leaves us 24 weeks when a formal semester-long teaching does not occur. If your physical plant is worth a billion, two billion dollars, as GWs may be, uh, that's a lot of, uh, of uh, sunk costs that aren't being utilized. I cannot imagine any other uh, enterprise in America that uses its, uh, its resources in that way. And for many years, I've been proposing changing the academic calendar from two to three semesters a year. And the faculty presently teach two, two, uh, two courses each of two semesters, or two, one for a total of three or four courses a year. And we put in a third semester, productivity would rise, adjuncts would be reduced, students could complete their degrees in less time, translate that into less tuition, if students enroll in four courses a semester for three semesters a year, it comes to 12 courses a year. And if followed the same formula for three years, they will have completed 36 courses to qualify with a bachelor's degree. The present scenario, four classes each term for two terms a year, or eight classes over a four-year period, equals only 32 classes. We could require then 36 courses, in which case we will be giving a student more education in three years than we presently do in four. or if we stay with 32 classes, the student could take off a semester 
for full-time work or internship or study abroad and enrich their uh, lives and their education in other ways. For many reasons, most faculty members are not keen on this idea. Uh, at GW, where I proposed the idea, the Faculty Senate refused to put it on the agenda. I couldn't get them to take a vote. And I realized that lots of details need to be worked out and to be enacted on every, any given campus. It would be in incrementally phased in, a set of new contracts adjusted by discipline would have to be drawn up, and the possibility of allowing faculty to rotate in and out of the plan or have an occasional semester off for research, perhaps every five rather than seven years, as is presently the case for sabbaticals. But this is a concept that's time is uh, coming. Again, my goal is to increase faculty productivity by 20%, reduce the number of administrative staff by 20%, along with these two modifications, change the academic calendar. Now, I want to take a word on uh, uh, professional staff before I close down. Over the past decades, several factors have contributed to the growth of the staff positions at America's colleges and universities. I call this the Charles Dickens complex. Please, sir, may I have some more, says Oliver Twist. In the post-1960s world, colleges have greatly expanded the services and facilities provided to undergraduate students, partly in order to attract the baby boomers who flooded the college gates from the 60s to the 70s, and then in response to the rise in the cost and price of education, uh, which induced parents to say, for this kind of money, my kid should be getting gourmet food, relaxing at a uh, health club, and studying at a library that's open 24 hours a day. My non-scientific observation is that the higher the ranking of the school, let's take a look at Ivy League campuses, the less likely the administration is to pay any attention to the students' uh, or parents' desires for more. The letter of admission is the more. Society stamp of approval that one is now a member of the club. <coughs> I knew somebody who went to a place other than Harvard, but nevertheless, had framed and hung in his office his letter of admission to Harvard. Uh, <laughs> uh, he had the key to the gate. He just chose to go someplace else, but I loved it. It's a great story. When my, uh, when my son, uh, Adam, arrived at Columbia's Morningside Heights, uh, my wife went into the bathroom to use the facilities, and she came out and she said, go immediately across the street to the hardware store and buy cleaning supplies. She says, this place is filthy. So I, I went to Columbia myself. Uh, I took great umbrage at Francine's remarks, so I ignored her. And I stayed in the room, and I hung around. Uh, and, uh, and at some point, nature called, and I went into the bathroom, <laughs> and I came out, and I said, I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm going across the street to the hardware store. Uh, it was, as my mother would have said in Ippish, a sewer. Uh, so now fast forward a few years. And my son Ben arrives in New Haven for his first day at Yale College, and we're right behind him, and we're schlepping in the suitcases and the computer supplies, and it's a dark, dreary, rainy New Haven morning, and the first thing Francine does when she walks into the room, because it's like this, you know, but not the lights, she, she wants to turn on the lights, but she can't find the switch. No lights. Nada. Nary a single bulb. Not even an empty socket. Now, if it turns out, if an Eli doesn't bring his own illumination... He spends four years in the dark. Trust me, neither of these scenarios could ever occur at George Washington University, where the dormitories are better than Marriott hotels. I know, I built them all. And, uh, and, uh, and because we are consumer responsive in a way that the Ivy League institutions are not obliged to be. 
we are competing with Boston University, and, uh, and the parents will say to me, at Boston University, uh, they have a new dormitory. And I know, because I built them. So uh, having spent uh, years as a vice president at Boston University, and now uh, years as a president at GW, I have some sympathy to the aspirations of uh, middle class and upper middle class parents and their belief that great universities have livable residence halls. Uh, and uh, and uh, they will succumb to the seduction of the name Harvard uh, because uh, they, it's, it's sort of like a cross in one of those, one of those uh, vampire movies. When they meet people at the country club and the people say, where is your son at school? If you can hold up and say, Harvard, man, the vampire backs off. But if you, uh, if you say George Washington University, they say, how are the dorms, right? <laughs> so so uh, you don't have to say another word if your kid's going to Harvard. Yes, I'm going to Harvard. Uh, um, and how are you paying for that? Oh, we got grandmother working the streets. But, but, but if you're sending your kid to GW, you damn well better give him a good dormitory room. So universities now uh, offer health and wellness facilities that rival spas, football, food that, that gets Michelin stars. In the Princeton Review, they used to get little forks and knives next to the names of the universities. There are outdoor, outdoor basketball courts for quick pickup games, student unions with bowling alleys. We've got a bowling alley at GW. Health services to dispense free flu shots. God forbid they should have to walk over to CVS. There are services to help the student cope with the uh, transition from home to campus, with the difficulties of living with roommates who exhibit erratic behavior, with advice on how to study and how to rewrite a resume. Placement offices that coach students on how to find a job. There are remedial programs for those students who skipped their high school classes when grandma was being taught, who never learned how to write an outline for a term paper on the modern equivalent of a four-by-six white index card. My personal uh, uh, favorite support service is not for students. It's for the parents. In my day, forgive me, I'm getting into being an old guy. I, in my, I, I ought to get on 60 Minutes. In my day, in my day, parents didn't know the name of my dean. And if they did, they never would have, under any circumstances, considered calling, calling Lawrence Chamberlain and saying, Dear Stevie, isn't doing as well in Lionel Trolling's English class as I was hoping. Would you please contact the professor and see what can be done to help him raise his grade? The deal I had with my parents was that I was to call home once a week. If I didn't call home, my father didn't send the $10. That was the deal. Today's kids call home everyone, call home every day for hours. Every day, parents come to town to restock the students' kitchens, to take home the winter clothes, bring new items to wear for the spring. I knew a campus mother from Athens, the one in Greece, who came to Washington twice a semester, registering for three days across the street at the Four Seasons in order to reorganize her son's apartment. She cleaned, she shopped for food, she cooked meals that she would freeze and leave in the, in the, uh, in the refrigerator. When I pointed this out, that given the cost of the airfare, she could have hired somebody in Washington to do these services. She looked at me and she said, a Greek, a Greek mother takes care of her sons. We don't delegate that to others. And I now see where that leads. <laughs> there has been a bloating of the middle class on campus for 25 years, a rise in the number of professional staff members, a significant growth in the advancement, what used to be called fundraising, development, and public affairs and media, which used to be called PR, in student support services, which was once called admissions and financial aid, hundreds, hundreds of people now raise annual funds. Hundreds. Dozens of people write press releases, build websites, and answer questions from the media. 
And what used to be a small office with a dean of admissions and financial aid has morphed into a mega conglomerate with the largest component of administrators at the university. I knew I was coming here, so I surfed the web of uh, uh, sites of several local universities. And here's a list of offices, each comprised of many staff people, I assure you, that report up the ladder to various senior vice presidents. There's admissions, athletics and recreation, campus recreation, the first, of course, is team sports. The second is uh, uh, non-NCAA fitness. There's a career center. There's an alcohol and drug education center. There's a center for civic engagement and public service. There's a center for student engagement. I'm not sure if that has to do with you know, putting boys and girls together. Whatever that is, student engagement. There's a counseling center. There's a dean of students. There's a disability support service office. There's a financial assistance office. There's a housing program. There's international services. There's multicultural student services off-campus student affairs, Office of Civility and Community Standards. I'd like to look into that one. Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities. There's a Parent Services Office. There's a Student Academic Success Office. There's a Student Health Office. There's an Office of Veteran Services. The three areas with the largest growth of professional staff have been in student services, compliance regulation. Federal government passes a lot of laws, <coughs> a lot of compliance obligations, non-funded mandates and in development, institutional advancement, as the institutions have gotten more pricey, more expensive, more, they've gotten more people to go out and knock on doors, and their assumption is, if you spend a dollar and you raise a dollar and a penny, you're a penny ahead. Over the past decades, universities have been the beneficiary of a series of federal unfunded mandates, services that have to be provided and reported about in order to make life on campus more transparent. Compliance officers gather information and write reports in the areas of research grants, personnel, public safety, student life, many other things. Each segment of campus life is now affected. By example, how do we comply with the Americans for Disabilities Act? The reporting of crimes, how grants are administered, personnel and discrimination, how many minorities are hired, how long it takes athletes to graduate, benefit management, and so on and so on. Each requires a compliance officer and a compliance office. After 9-11, the federal government mandated several new student visa requirements, and many campuses also enacted additional safety procedures. All of this was done because it was the right thing to do, but none of the additional requirements came with appropriated dollars. Undoubtedly, changes in campus security came about after the incident at Virginia Tech, but nobody offered to pay for them. And many more will inevitably follow from Penn State. When the campus women's group came to see me about opening a daycare facility I couldn't come up with a response other than yes, for the request made sense. But the solution didn't come for free. When gay advocates asked me that marital benefits be provided to partners, I did it because it seemed to me right and just, but it didn't come for free. Older benefits, like health care, have risen significantly in cost. Faculty are teaching less, except at community colleges and almost all disciplines. Professional staff are proliferating in many areas of university life, Benefits for all employees are increasing in scope and cost. A national, a national health care system for everybody with lower institutional costs across the board <coughs> and help stabilize budgets. It would lower tuition, just as I believe would be the lower cost of a car produced in Detroit. But that's another uh, talk. Higher education is in need of financial and governance reform. About that, I think we all agree. It's the methodology to put it in place that makes for a robust post-lunch conversation. Thank you very much for your attention.